Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 7. The Protectorate General to Pacify the West. So we spent the last episode in the East, following the fading fortunes of the Eastern Khanate and the rising fortunes of the Tang Dynasty. As we discussed, in many ways, these two states were mirror images of each other. One was a Turkish steppe state becoming increasingly sedentary and Chinese. The other, a Chinese state that was becoming more Turkish and more steppe-like. They were both hybrid states, but only one was destined to survive. And the survivor was the Tang Dynasty. And today, we will discuss the rapid westward expansion of the Tang and the fate of the Western Khanate. This episode will in fact close out the story of the first Turkish Khanate, as the Western Khanate meets the same fate as its eastern brother, riven by civil war and unrest within, and ultimately crushed by the Tang from without. Now as we discussed last time, the Tang dynasty was born of a family of Sinicized Turks from the borderlands of China and the Turkish Khanate. This frontier culture made them fundamentally different from the preceding Sui dynasty, which was totally Han. The Tang dynasty would go on to be unusually cosmopolitan for a Chinese dynasty, which reflected its cosmopolitan origins. But for our purposes, the most important thing is that the Tang had pulled off a heretofore unseen trick. Because of their dual origins, they had legitimacy on both the steppe and in China. They could therefore weld together the advantages of the Chinese state and the steppe world. They combined the resources and the administrative power and sophistication of the Chinese state with Turkish steppe military might, and they used this to build an unprecedented war machine, one capable of projecting Chinese power farther west than ever before. They would surpass even the long-dead Han dynasty in the sheer scale and scope of their conquests. Not only that, but the achievement of the Tang in the west in the lands of Central Asia, would also never be matched by later dynasties. And as we will come to see, their march west was ultimately stopped only by the coming of the armies of Islam. But between the collapse of the Eastern Khanate and the arrival of the Arab armies of Islam, the Tang armies, in many cases led and staffed by Turks, were the unrivaled military force in Central Asia. Emperor Taizong essentially co-opted Turkish power after defeating the Eastern Khanate, even where this meant violating traditional Chinese norms of government. He was personally deeply familiar with Turkish traditions, coming from a Turkish family. He also had no problem with allowing Turks into the highest ranks of the state's military apparatus. The Turks were allowed to maintain their local tribal structure and customs and he personally rewarded Turkish troops, speaking to them in the traditional steppe way about the riches they would receive in military victory. In essence, he was a Khan emperor. This is what allowed the Tang to create such a mighty war machine, built around largely steppe armies, but steppe armies now backed by all of the wealth and power of the Chinese state. So what did the Tang do with this unparalleled war machine? In essence, their primary goal remained the same as before, keep China secure from the steppe. But they were able to do this now at a greater distance from China itself, and now they were able to incorporate the steppe world and militarily dominate it, pacify it, make sure that the steppe tribes knew their place and would be incapable of attacking and raiding into China. And who knew? Perhaps they could even reach out into Sogdiana control the incomparably wealthy Silk Road cities of the West themselves. This would not only provide economic wealth in and of itself, it could prevent another step power from arising and gaining the riches and power that it would need to pose a threat to China ever again. And so, Emperor Taizong and the Tang set out to pacify the West. Naturally, this meant war with the Western Khanate. When we last left the Western Khanate, Tong Yabgu Khan had died just after defeating Iran. He had died failing to put down a revolt led by the Dolu faction and the Karluks. Now remember the Dolu and the Nushibi were the two factions of the Western Khanate. 
Each were five of the so-called Ten Arrows that made up the political elite of the Western Khanate. Tong Yabgu Khan had been backed by the Nushibi faction, and his assassination by his uncle Bahadur was meant to bring the Dolu back to power. This assassination would eventually prove to be fatal to the Khanate, though, and would mark Tong Yabgu Khan's rule as the zenith of the Western Khanate. It's all downhill from here, folks. After assassinating his nephew, Bahadur proclaimed himself Khan in 630, the same year that the Tang completed the conquest of the Eastern Khanate. However, this was not accepted by the Nushibi faction, and the subject tribes, most importantly the new larger subject confederations in the west, like the Khazars, the Onogurs, and the Bulgars, used this instability at the top to break free from the Khanate. As we said back in episode 5, when these western tribes were reincorporated into the Khanate in the 610s, they were brought back in as these new larger confederations. While these larger confederations therefore maintained their strength and internal cohesion, and they were able to take advantage of the Turkish Khanate's weakness to throw off the yoke, never to return to the Gök-Türk fold. To the south, the Sogdian city-states ceased to pay tribute to the Khanate as the state entered into crisis. The Khan's authority over them began to melt away. In the Khanate's east, the Karluks rose up in revolt, and on the Khanate's eastern borders, the Tang-backed Tiele Zweyan II confederation that had helped Taizong bring down the Eastern Khanate began to encroach into the Western Khanate. They brought their Tiele cousins who were subjects of the Western Khanate into their confederation, and thereby brought them into revolt. So now the Turkish Khanate was facing a revolt on all sides, and the prospect of civil war between the two wings of the Ten Arrows. There are some indications that Bahadur tried to mend the divide between the factions and between the Khanate and its subject tribes. But this didn't really work, and the Nushibi did not recognize his title. He also began to lose support among the Dolu, forcing him to abdicate without even reigning a full year. Following his abdication, he attempted to flee, but was captured and executed by the Nushibi. And so the state sank further into chaos. The Nushibi were able to reassert their supremacy and appoint the next Khan, Su Yabgu Khan, a son of the great Tong Yabgu Khan. However, the tensions remained, and Su Yabgu Khan was unable to really count on the Dolu faction in the same way that his father had. While Tong Yabgu Khan had not been loved by the Dolu, they had at least recognized his supremacy and legitimacy. Remember, Tong Yabgu Khan's real strength had been as a politician, not as a general as a man who could perform the delicate balancing act between the two wings of the Ten Arrows. Though the Dolu hadn't really loved him, they hadn't plotted against him until the end of his reign, when his authority began to slip due to the Khanate becoming overstretched in its war with Iran. And Tong Yabgu Khan's successors really did not have his skill in pulling off this balancing act. So Su Yabgu Khan's authority was far weaker than that of his father's. The Dolu faction never really accepted him, and ultimately both Su Yabgu Khan and the Dolu faction sent emissaries to the Tang court, asking for support. But for now, Emperor Taizong bided his time and refused to support either side. He was still digesting the conquest of the Eastern Khanate, and likely wanted to see civil war consume the Western Khanate. Su Yabgu Khan attempted to defeat the Tie Le in an effort to exert his control over the east and cement his rule, but he was defeated on the field of battle. This further eroded his legitimacy and the authority of the state. Ultimately, Su Yabgu Khan was able to consolidate power, but he fell in battle, attempting to assert Turkish control over Balkh, which was allied with the Khazar rebellion in the north. This led to a power vacuum that the Dolu faction was able to exploit. Their candidate, fittingly named Dolu Khan, was a son of a Shad who served under Tong Yabgu Khan and was an ambassador to the Tang dynasty in the east. He succeeded to the throne in 632. This meant that there had been four Khans of the west within two years. Clearly, the authority of the western Khanate was in total collapse. Dulo Khan, facing this rapidly deteriorating situation, submitted to the Tang and received recognition from them. 
It was around this time that the city-states of Kashgar and Khotan in the Tadim Basin, east of the Tian Shan Mountains, submitted to the Tang and ceased to be Turkish vassals. However, at this stage, the Tang influence over the western court itself was really actually pretty minimal. This was really about the Khan getting cash and legitimacy from the Tang, but still, it's not a good look. Dulu Khan ultimately died in 634, leading to a reversal of fortune for the Nushibi, who now got their own candidate, Dulu Khan's elder brother Ishbara Tolis, onto the throne in 634, making him the fifth Khan in four years. So really, things are not going well. Ishbara was now facing a truly dire situation. The instability of the center was causing continued revolts by the subject tribes and peoples. There was, of course, no way for the Khan to reconquer the larger Western confederations like the Khazars. They were gone for good by now. But even closer to home, revolts by the Karluks, the Tele, and others continued. Additionally, a new power had arisen in Arabia. Armies of conquest, inspired by a new and strange faith, had begun launching brutal attacks on the Sassanid dynasty to the south to stunning success. In the east, the Tang dynasty was steadily growing and expanding its power on the eastern steppes. Ishbara realized that the only way to rescue the Khanate and restore its authority over the subject peoples was to fix the instability at the center, and this could only be done by putting to bed the feud between the Dolu and the Nushibi factions, the feud between the two wings of the Ten Arrows. Ishbara repeated the ceremony done by Tong Yabgu Khan and sent ten arrows out to the Shads, five to the Dolu and five to the Nushibi. This was intended to recertify their authority and emphasize the balance between the factions. Ishbara's policies did have some success, and he was able to maintain a shaky truce between the two wings of the ten arrows. This would allow Ishbara Tolis to rule for about five years, but in a lot of ways, the damage was done, and the feud between the two factions of the Ten Arrows simmered under the surface. The centrifugal forces pulling the subject tribes and peoples away from the center continued. In particular, the revolt of the Sagian city-states in Central Asia continued, and it was only with great difficulty that Ishbara was able to put down the revolts of the Karluks and the Tele. What had been achieved was merely a shaky peace between the two main factions of the Khanate, a measure of stability restored after four years of chaos. But at the same time, the center was actually barely holding on. Tensions continued to simmer under the surface among the ruling tribes of the Khanate. Ultimately, Ishbara's balancing act between the Nushibi and the Dolu proved impossible to maintain. After the rebellion of a noble of the Dolu faction in 638, Ishbara fled and was forced to rely on the Nushibi to reinstate him on the throne. Of course, the Dolu did not accept the reinstatement, and so they invited Yukuk Shad, the son of the late Duobi Khan who we discussed last time, the last ruler of the late Eastern Khanate, to take up the rule of the Western Khanate. When we last saw Yukuk Shad, he had been defeated attempting to put down a revolt against his father in the east in 627 by the Tele. After this defeat, he fled to one of the Silk Road cities in the Tarim Basin as the eastern Khanate began to collapse. Now, he was summoned to take up the crown in the west. The ascent of Yukuk Shad in 638 was in some ways an attempt to end the Dolu-Nushibi split. As an outsider from the old Eastern Khanate, he was not beholden to either faction. I think the intention here was probably to prevent a return of civil war and the fracturing of the Western Khanate. But the reality was that Yukuk Shad had been invited by the Dolu, and the Dolu had long had better relations with the Eastern Court. Remember how all the way back in Episode 5, the Dolu had also brought in an Eastern Prince to be the Khan of the Western Khanate. And as such, the Nushibi were really not that keen on submitting to Yukuk Shad. The reality was that the divide between the two wings of the Khanate was, at this point, so deep that it would take a truly exceptional leader to reunite them. Yukuk Shad, for all of his abilities, was not that person. So the ascension of Yukuk Shad also marked the split of the Western Khanate into two de facto independent states with the Ili River as their border. To the northeast, the Dolu faction ruled, led by Yukuk Shad. To the southwest, the Nushibi ruled, led by Ishbara Tolis. 
but we should not picture this as a division into two formal states. Instead, these were two rival courts. They each aspired to rule the whole of the Western Khanate, but went through periods of something approaching recognition, if not recognition of the other side's right to rule, then at least recognition of their own side's limitations. It was a civil war, but one that would go through hot and cold periods, and it would end only with the destruction of the Khanate itself. The Tang, of course, loved this, and would come to feed the fire by supporting each side in turn, always keeping their eyes on the ultimate goal of dominating and pacifying the whole steppe. With the resumption of civil war, the subject peoples of the Khanate were in varying states of revolt, some remaining loyal, some in open revolts and essentially independent, like the Khazars, but most somewhere in between, trying to weather the chaos, play both sides, and wait to see how things shake out. One of the subject peoples falling into that third wait-and-see category was a city-state in the Tarim Basin called Karakhoja, or Gaochang in Chinese, though I'm sure I'm getting the Chinese wrong. And it was this city-state that would serve as the entry point for the Tang to expand into the west. Karakhoja was an oasis kingdom, made up of a union of four city-states that lay just to the south and the east of modern-day Urumqi in East Turkestan in China. Like the Sogdian city-states of Central Asia, it was a key part of the Silk Road. But unlike the Sogdian city-states further west, Karakhoja was essentially Han Chinese in character. Its culture was a merger of Han Chinese culture brought by Han settlers and Mongol and Turk steppe culture. Each of the four city-states of the kingdom was run by a separate, partly Chinese, partly Turkish, partly Mongol clan, which then had joined together into a sort of macro city-state. These four clans would then feud and haggle to run the combined kingdom. At the time of its submission to the Ruran Khanate before the coming of the Turks, it was estimated that 10,000 Han Chinese lived in this kingdom. Karakhoja then came to submit to the Turkish Khanate under Bumin's rule. Politically, under the Turkish Khanate, it was ruled by a king, but there were constant political tensions between the four rich clans that struggled for control and divides between the Sinicizers and the steppe traditionalists. You know, those divides we've talked about over and over again. The Turks played these factions off each other as part of maintaining control, and married Turkish princes and princesses of the Ashina clan into the powerful clans of the kingdom. As the eastern Khanate began to collapse, the rulers of Karakhoja bent with the wind. Their city sat on the borders between the eastern and western Khanates. There is indication in the Chinese sources that they submitted to the Tiele, and there are records of them also paying tribute to the Sui. But as the Eastern Khanate entered its death throes, various high-ranking members of the Ashina clan fled to Karakhoja seeking refuge. This included Yukuk Shat, who fled to Karakhoja after he was defeated by the Tiele rebels in the Eastern Khanate in 627, as we discussed last time. After his father Duobi died, Yukuk Shad stayed as a guest in Karakhoja, and he actually received the offer of the Dolu to ride west and take up the throne while he was cooling his heels there. The king of Karakhoja at this time, a member of one of those four clans that rang the kingdom, was named Chu Yong, and he welcomed these refugees. The important thing to remember is that Chu Yong had a very anti-Tang position, and he had always enjoyed very good relations with the Gökturk. He himself was partially Turkish, and was descended from the Ashna clan, and his clan was deeply linked by marriage alliances to the ruling family of the Gökturk. This, of course, did not make him popular with the Tang, and after the Eastern Khanate fell, Emperor Taizong sent letters to Karakhoja demanding that Chuyang turn over his Turkish guests, or, you know, quote-unquote guests. But Chu Yong refused, and talks went nowhere. At the same time, Yukuk Shad, upon ascending to the throne of the West in 638, offered military protection to Karakhoja. This gave Chu Yong the confidence to cut off the Silk Road trade to the Tang through his city. Completely fed up with this guy, Emperor Taizong gave the order in 640 to prepare an invasion of Karakhoja, led by a Han Chinese general named Ho Junji. Again, I apologize for not knowing Chinese. Unfortunately, I'm something of an uncooked barbarian myself. 
Now, as we said earlier, this Tang intervention was driven by two main concerns. Consolidate Tang control over the steppe and gain control of the Silk Road trade. Taizong did not want to have this hostile city-state sitting on top of the trade routes, and he definitely did not want the Ashina clan using it as a base to attempt a comeback in the east. The fact that this new Khan of the Western Khanate now himself had a claim to the defunct eastern throne was no doubt also very troubling to Taizong. And so Tang troops, led by Hu Junji, arrived at the borders of Karahoja in 640. Chu Yong sent urgent messages to Yukuk Shad, and Yukuk Shad marshaled an army of Western Turks to come to the aid of Karahoja. Chu Yong, the Western Turks, and the forces of Karahoja were stunned by the size and capabilities of the incoming Tang armies. Now, Yukuk Shad probably had no excuse to be stunned, having seen the Tang armies in person back in the east. But remember, the Tang war machine was novel in Central Asia. The combination of Turkish arms and Chinese organization and resources was brand new. The Western Turkish forces fled on seeing the might of the Tang armies, and Chu Yong had no choice but to surrender. Hu Junji entered Karahoja in triumph, but he did not intend to simply teach Karahoja a lesson and to assert Tang dominance. He had orders to establish a whole new political order. Instead of keeping Chu Yong in place, or even putting a member of one of the other clans on the throne, Karahoja would be annexed and directly administered by the Tang. And so, Hu Junji inaugurated the Protectorate General to pacify the West, or the Anzi Protectorate. As the name implies, the Protectorate General to pacify the West had loftier goals than simply putting one wayward city-state or kingdom in its place. It was instead the tool to realize the grand vision of Emperor Taizong, the Tang intended to assert permanent Chinese dominance over the West, that is, over Inner and Central Asia. As the name implies, this was a military administration. The system was called the Jimi system, or Jimi Fuzhou in Chinese. Under the Jimi system, the local elites would largely be kept in place, and would provide tribute participate in civil administration, and provide troops to the Tang when required. But ultimate power lay with the Tang military, which permanently garrisoned Tang troops in the region. And remember, these are those steppe nomad troops, the steppe armies backed by Chinese military might, so they're very effective. This meant the Tang could remove or replace the local rulers as they saw fit, as they had done just now in Karahoja. Some traditional structures of Chinese administration were even brought in, things like the census and the division of land into the traditional Chinese agricultural systems. But unlike in China proper, where the civilian administration ran the show and the state was directly administered by the center, this would be military rule, superimposed over the local power structures. The protector general, backed by the all-powerful Tang war machine, was to be the supreme power to whom all of the local tribes and city-states and kingdoms owed fealty and allegiance. The conquest of Karahoja by the Tang raised the temperature in the Tarim Basin, metaphorically speaking, of course. The other petty kingdoms and city-states of the region now had to contend with large and powerful Tang armies garrisoned next door. The western Turkish Khanate was equally worried. Remember that this area had been on the border between the western and the eastern Khanates, and as such, which Khanate was recognized as overlord shifted as the fortunes of west and east waxed and waned. So it wasn't actually clear that the western Khanate had an ironclad claim to overlordship here, like they did over the Sogdian city-states on the other side of the Tian Shan Mountains. But still, the coming of the Tang was shocking. The Chinese had never come this far west. And then there's that name, the Protectorate General to Pacify the West. Additionally, remarkable news came flooding in from the South, as we will discuss in detail in a later episode. At the same time that the Tang were marching into Karahoja, the armies of Islam had shockingly toppled the Sassanid dynasty. The last Sassanid Shah, Yazdegerd, 
even sent messengers to both Yukukshad and Ishbaratolis begging for assistance. But both Yukukshad and Ishbaratolis were too preoccupied with their own civil war and with the coming of the Tang armies to assist, and probably the last best opportunity to stop the armies of Islam was lost. The coming of the Tang essentially resulted in two alliances forming in Central and Inner Asia. The Tang pushed the other city-states of the Tarim Basin and Yukukshad closer together. The remaining Tarim Basin city-states, Karasar, Yangchi, and Kusha, all sent embassies to Yukukshad, who was of course more than willing to listen. At the same time, of course, Yukukshad was waging his cold war against Ishbara Tolis's Nushibi faction. Seeing this, the Tang put into place the traditional Chinese strategy when faced with a divided steppe confederation, ally with the other faction. In 641, Ishbara Tolis's sons submitted to the Tang and accepted their sovereignty. The Tiele confederation, the Zhuenyan Tu, were of course already allied with the Tang. So now we have an alliance of Yukukshad leading the more powerful of the Western Khanate's factions allied with the remaining independent Tarim Basin city-states versus the Tang Protector General allied with the Nushibi and the Tiele. Yukukshad's first priority, however, was not the Tang. I think he probably saw the Tang presence in the Tarim Basin was not yet fully established. But if so, this was a grave mistake. Instead of striking quickly to kill the serpent and the egg, he let it grow until it was a deadly and ultimately invincible foe. First, Yukukshad had Ishbara Tolis' son killed, which he managed to do in 641 shortly after the Tang recognized him. It appears that Yukukshad was able to consolidate control over certain clans of the Nushibi, but not all, and Ishbara Tolis himself remained alive and supported by most of the Nushibi. In 642, Yukukshad launched a raid against Samarkand and other of the western Silk Road city-states of Sogdiana, just as messengers and scouting parties of these new Arabs, with their strange new religion, began to tentatively cross the Amudarya River and come to the courts of these Sogdian city-states. Now, these city-states had ceased to pay tribute to the Khanate during the years of chaos since the fall of Tong Yabgu Khan and Yukukshad was keen to reassert his power over them. His invasion was successful, and he was able to extract a decent amount of loot from the Khanate's wayward vassals. But this actually led to further problems. Yukukshad felt that he had to solidify his support among the Nushibi by allocating them a proportionally larger share of the loot. But this then upset his Dolu followers, the people who had put him on the throne in the first place. And this really is a microcosm of everything that was dysfunctional about the Western Khanate as it approached its end. The division and polarization of the state into these two parties led to these parties seeing everything as zero-sum. A win for the Nushibi is a loss for the Dolu, and vice versa. And these two factions came to see each other as the real existential enemy. Not the Khazars, not the tribes and cities in revolt, not the Tiele, not even the Tang or the armies of Islam. This type of mentality leads people to see compromisers and bridge builders not as honorable statesmen attempting to save the state, but as traitors to their own side. This then leads to uncompromising leaders coming to power, which results in a cycle of partisan hatred as each side continually provokes and escalates against the other. And ultimately, of course, this cycle of partisan hatred and violence always brings about the destruction of both parties. And so it was with the Western Gokturk. Yukuk Shad's desire to compromise made him a traitor in the eyes of the Dolu, while simultaneously not buying the support of their hardened enemies, the Nushibi. And so, in 642, after the campaign in Sogdiana, Yukuk Shad's support among the Dolu was at a nadir. Instead of saying, hey, we can use this as an opportunity to begin stitching the Khanate back together, I mean, these Arabs look like they could be a really, really big problem for all of us. And then those Tang armies in the east are also just terrifying. 
The Nushibi instead saw this as their chance to achieve final victory over the Dolu and seize the throne. They ditched Yukukshad, despite his perhaps overly fair treatment of them in Sogdiana, and they recognized Irbis Shigui, a brother of the late Ishbaratolis, as Khan. They then turned to the Tang, who were of course more than happy to help destabilize the Western Khanate. With Tang aid, the Nushibi attacked Yukukshad as he camped along the Ili River in modern-day Kazakhstan. Yukukshad was forced to flee west to Sairam, a small city-state along the Aris River near modern-day Shimkant. The Nushibi besieged Sairam, and Yukukshad pleaded for aid from the Dolu. But none came. Remarkably, however, Presumably by virtue of superior tactics or generalship, or perhaps Nushibi incompetence or both, Yukukshad was actually able to defeat the Nushibi outside the walls of Sairam. He attempted to use this victory to re-establish his standing among the Dolu, but that ship had sailed. He was unable to turn his military victor at the Battle of Sairam into a political victory. The Dolu were just done with him, for really stupid reasons. Out of options, Yukukshad instead fled south to Afghanistan. He tried to set himself up as a Khan in Afghanistan, but he would only ever be able to hold the city of Kunduz as Muslim armies came closer and closer to the city. He spent the rest of his life there, a Khan in name, a mayor in reality. The fall of Yukukshad ended up marking the end of a western Turkish Khanate that was nominally completely sovereign. Irbis Shigui had acknowledged the theoretical suzerainty of the Tang as part of the deal to get their support. While the Tang had previously acknowledged a Nushibi Khan, there was at that time still a Dolu Khan in Yukukshad who refused to bend the knee. But now there was no such Dolu Khan. Instead, in 642, Irbis Shigui became the Khan of an increasingly divided and weakened western Turkish Khanate who acknowledged the overlordship of the Tang. He had depended on the Tang to come to power. He had needed their money and their military support, and perhaps most importantly, the legitimacy that they gave him by recognizing his rule. But we shouldn't think of this as, like, complete vassalage. The Turkish Khanate was not turning over the operation of the state to the Tang. They were just acknowledging that the Tang were theoretically higher ranking in the chain of ultimate power. Remember that at this time, the world did not have the sort of clear ideas of national sovereignty that we have today, where we recognize each country as being nominally equal and totally sovereign. Today, for example, the mighty USA and tiny Malta are each considered equal subjects of international law and each is considered totally and completely sovereign over its respective territory. That's just not how things worked in this time and place. There were multiple levels of sovereignty where various kingdoms, khanates, empires, and city-states existed, each with overlapping claims and rights and their own place in the hierarchy. Previously, when China was weak, they were forced to acknowledge the Turkish khanate as the ultimate sovereign, the one on the top of the pile. Now it was reversed. In order to strengthen his claims to legitimacy, in 646, Irbis Shigui asked the Tang to send him a Chinese wife. The Tang, however, had been consolidating their power in the Tarim Basin, and they wanted to use this as an opportunity to further expand. In exchange for a Chinese bride, the aging Emperor Taizong demanded that the Turks hand over the remaining Tarim city-states. Irbis Shigui balked at this, and you can see why. The past 10 years had seen the steady erosion of Turkish power, both in the Tarim Basin and over the city-states of Sogdiana. The entire northwestern portion of the Khanate had revolted, with the Khazars, the Bulgars, and others essentially permanently throwing off the Khanate's yoke. Jungaria and Tibet had also permanently broken away. And so Irbis Shigui refused. The Turks then sent military reinforcements to support their allies in the Tarim city-states of Karasar, Kucha, and Yangchi, and the Tang prepared for war. In 646, the protector general himself marched out of Karakhoja to conquer Karasar. In a surprise raid at dawn, the Tang defeated both the troops of the city-state and a Turkish force sent by Irbis Shigui. The Tang occupied the city and briefly put a client king on the throne, 
but the Turks were later able to retake the city and reinstall its former leader. At this point, Irbis Shigui faced a rebellion by a member of the Ashina clan, a man named Ashina Heilu, who in time would become the last Khan of the Western Gökturk. But Irbis Shigui was able to put this revolt down, and Ashina Heilu fled east to join the Tang. The Tang appointed Ashina Heilu as a military commander in Gansu province, where he sat waiting, biding his time. The Tang decided at this point that they needed a steppe commander to lead their armies in the west. Remember that the Tang military machine was really based on the combination of Turkish troops and Chinese wealth and organization. And so, in 648, the protector general sent an army composed primarily of eastern Turkish troops and put it under the command of a man named Ashina Sher, a member of the royal house of the Ashina clan from the former eastern Khanate. Ashina Sher had been part of that rebellion against Dolby Khan that we discussed last time, and he had been incorporated into the Tang military machine. He was sent to establish Tang control over the Tarim Basin, and he quickly conquered Karasar for a second time. The Tang then established a garrison in the city after this second conquest. After conquering Karasar, Ashina Sher turned his armies towards the Tarim Basin city-state of Kucha. He employed the traditional steppe tactics of deceit to ensnare the city's defenders and the western Gokturk troops into a trap where they were defeated in an ambush. The defeated western Turkish troops retreated to a nearby town where Ashina Sher crushed the remnants. By early 649, with Kucha thus conquered, the Tang control of the Tarim Basin was complete. Irbis Shigui was in a tough spot now. The defeats in the Tarim Basin had been costly. More importantly, they damaged his legitimacy and right to rule. Clearly, heaven did not approve of a Khan who lost so badly. The state itself was now just a shadow of its former self, a Khanate in miniature, holding the lands of modern-day southern Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. Even there, its power over the Sogdian city-states was deeply eroded. The city-states had begun falling into wars with each other as the Khan's authority weakened, some of them reaching out to the Arab newcomers for aid and assistance. It seemed that nothing could stop the Tang from crushing the Western Khanate once and for all. But then Emperor Taizong died. He had been ill for several years. Modern historians think that his illness may have been exacerbated by the medicines given to him by his doctors and alchemists, maybe even potions designed to make him immortal, but which actually contained heavy metals we now know to be fatal. On his deathbed, he reaffirmed that his chosen successor was his ninth son, Li Ji, who took the throne as Emperor Gaozong. But Taizong was not entirely confident in his son's abilities, and his son was still very young, and therefore he entrusted the empire to his two regents, the Duke of Zhao and the Duke of Yan. Both were longtime courtiers and advisors of Emperor Taizong of Han extraction. Emperor Taizong lived kind of a crazy life, from being born a younger son of a Turkish border lord on the fringes of the Chinese state, through the conquests and wars of his father that united China, to fratricidal power struggles with his brothers and other relatives, conducting wars against the Gokturks and the Koreans, and ultimately overthrowing his father to rule in his own right. If his father, Gaozu, was the first Turkish emperor, as we have called him, Taizong was the second. There would not be a third for many, many centuries, and never again in China. Taizong's son, Emperor Gaozong, though perhaps ethnically Turkish, was thoroughly Chinese in all of the ways that mattered. The death of Emperor Taizong and the rise of a regency government over his son in 649 created something of a political crisis and vacuum in China. Remember that the Tang dynasty was still very young, and because of their Turkish roots, they were still seen by many of the Han elites as culturally foreign and inferior. And China itself had not been held together for long periods of time since the Han dynasty over 300 years earlier. For all anyone knew, 
the Tang would prove to be like the Sui or the Jin, a short-lived dynasty that briefly united China. So the attention in China turned inwards, away from campaigns in Central Asia. In this environment, Ashina Helu, that former Western Turkish rebel who fled to the Tang, spotted his chance. Having been unsuccessful in overthrowing Irbis Shigui earlier, Ashina Helu likely saw that now was the perfect time to strike. The Western Khan had been humbled by the Tang. So using Emperor Taizong's death as a pretext, he asserted his independence from the local Chinese officials and took over the local military administration in Gansu province in 649. The Chinese civilian officials tried to curb his growing power in Gansu by ordering him to send his son as a hostage to the Tang court in Chang'an. But in the confusion of the succession in the early years of the regency, Ashna Helu's son simply returned to Gansu. Thus convinced that the Tang central authorities couldn't stop him, Ashina Helu declared his independence and took the Tang army from Gansu, which remember was mostly composed of nomadic Turkish troops, and marched it west to topple Irbis Shigui. He defeated Irbis Shigui near the city of Shuanghe in the Tarim Basin and declared himself Khan. Quickly, the remnants of the western Khanate rallied to Ashina Helu. The first to do so were obviously the Dolu, who were of course not happy that the Nushibi had backed Irbis Shigui. But they were just the first. And in time, Irbis Shigui, defeated in battle, was abandoned by his Nushibi allies. He fled, and Ashina Helu became the sole Khan. But he was the sole Khan of a far, far diminished Khanate. The Khazars, the Bulgars, and the other large western confederations were long gone. The Tarim Basin city-states were gone. The hold over Sogdiana had at the very least been greatly, greatly weakened. And now, the feuding Sogdian city-states had begun reaching out to the strange Arab newcomers for aid and assistance. The Tiele tribes had formed a rival confederation, which had recently been overthrown by the Uyghurs with Tang support. The Khanate was reduced to a rump, holding essentially only the mountains of Kyrgyzstan and the steppes of southern Kazakhstan, hiding, in a sense, from the Chinese beyond the walls of the Tian Shan and Altai Mountains. So while Ashina Helu was the first Khan recognized by both the Nushibi and the Dolu factions in many years, he still felt a need to consolidate his rule. He also wanted to see if he could take advantage of the perceived weakness of the Tang. So beginning in 650, Ashina Helu began to mount a series of raids into Tang territory. These were designed primarily to carry off booty that he could distribute among the tribes and to defeat the Tang in battle to secure his legitimacy. Maybe through this, he could re-establish the reputation and the strength of the Khanate and begin to stitch back together what was broken. But it was not to be. The political instability in China following the death of Emperor Taizong turned out to be short-lived, and the Tang not only survived, but entrenched itself. It turns out that the Tang were not destined to be a short-lived dynasty like the Sui or the Jin, but a mighty and long-lived empire. After two counterattacks in 651 and 655 failed to defeat Ashina Helu, the Tang regents organized three armies to crush Ashina Helu and finally bring an end to the Western Khanate. Two of these three armies were led by other members of the Ashina clan. Like Ashina Helu, they were descendants of the ruling family of the Eastern Khanate, now members of the Tang's mighty Turco-Chinese war machine. The third army, and overall command of the expedition was given to a Han Chinese general named Su Dingfang. Su Dingfang was an experienced commander and had risen with the Tang and fought in the wars of unification under Emperor Gaozu and Emperor Taizong. He also had experience fighting Turkish steppe armies and had led Tang armies in the final struggle to bring down the Eastern Khanate. The regents also summoned the Uyghurs to aid them. Having aided the Uyghurs in overthrowing the Tiele Zweyantu Confederation in 646, the Uyghurs were, for now, solid Tang vassals, and obliged the regents by sending 10,000 horsemen led by the son of the Uyghur Khan. And so, in October of 657, the armies led by Su Dingfang set out in two separate columns. Su Dingfang had made the decision to launch the war in the autumn, knowing that it would mean fighting in winter. This was designed to give the Tang an element of surprise and was a huge gamble. Su Dingfang is reported to have said, 
The barbarians do not believe that we can campaign at this season. Let us hasten to surprise them. In general, really until the 20th century, armies mostly would fight in the summer. Supply problems, cold, disease, snow, ice, and so on made campaigning in the winter very difficult. Additionally, peasants would usually have to return home to harvest crops in the autumn, which made marching out for war in autumn very hard. The fact that Su Dingfang was able to do this shows two main things. First, the Tang had very sophisticated organization and supply systems, and were able to maintain standing armies capable of doing this. And secondly, Su Dingfang was very reliant on steppe warriors, mostly Turks of various sorts. Steppe warriors did not mind fighting in the winter. In fact, in many ways they preferred it. The frozen rivers could be used as highways for the horses, and the horses were less susceptible to overwork in the heat. And if you're living off the herds, you don't really have to worry about winter supply chain problems. Now at this time, the end of 657, Ashina Heilu and the Western Khanate's main hordes were located in the southern Kazakh steppes, on the other side of the Tian Shan and the Altai Mountains from the Tang. In the north, Su Dingfang's army and the Uyghur army set out on a southeastern march from Mongolia and the lands of the Tele, marching across the Altai Mountains to fall upon the Turks from the northeast. In the center, the two armies led by the Ashina princes marched through the narrow gap between the Altai and the Tian Shan Mountains, aiming to meet up with the other armies on the far side of the Tian Shan, near the Ili River. Upon hearing of the invasion, Ashina Heilu marched his armies north as quickly as he could. The passes through the Altai were harder on men and horses than traversing the gap between the mountain ranges, especially in fall and winter, so Ashina Heilu likely thought that if he could catch the army led by Su Dingfang and the Uyghurs just as they were exiting the mountains, they would be at their weakest and most disorganized, and could be overwhelmed. He could then defeat them, turn around, and crush the armies led by his Ashina cousins. For his part, Su Dingfang pushed his army to get over the Altai Mountains as quickly as possible. Both Su Dingfang and the two Ashina princes also attempted to negotiate and pull more tribes away from Ashina Helu with some success. A tribe loyal to Ashina Helu did put up some resistance in the Altai to slow the Tang advance, but by the end of November, Su Dingfang's armies had largely crossed the Altai. They emerged just north of the Irtish River, and Su Dingfang sent his scouts out to locate the Turkish army and determine its strength. They located Ashna Heilu and his army just to the south of the Irtish, marching north in an attempt to ambush the Tang before they emerged from the mountains. According to the Tang sources, the Turkish army was over a hundred thousand strong, but Ashna Heilu was too late. Cleverly, Su Dingfang decided to use the step trick of the feigned retreat. He sent out a portion of his army to act as a decoy. Ashina Heilu and the Turks fell into the trap, thinking it was the vanguard of the army marching out of the Altai. So Ashina Heilu and the Western Turks charged the Tang army, which of course retreated and drew the Turks into the Tang ambush. The Turkish army was crushed by the very steppe tactics that they were so famous for. But in a lot of ways, this really shows just how steppe, just how Turkish the Tang armies really were, even when led by a Han general. The Turkish army was annihilated. Ashina Heilu himself only narrowly escaped being captured then and there. He fled south and west to Tashkent with Tang scouts hot on his heels. But the people of Tashkent, upon receiving the dejected and beaten Khan, knew that the writing was on the wall. They turned Ashina Heilu over to the Tang. As he was carted off to Chang'an to face his punishment, Ashina Heilu is reported to have said, I am a defeated and ruined captive of war. Emperor Taizong treated me with generosity, but I have betrayed him. In my present defeat, heaven has vented its fury at me. Thus ended the Western Khanate, the last remnant of the great Gökturk, the first pan-Eurasian steppe empire, and the first Turkish state. All of Central Asia now came under the hegemony and rule of the Protectorate General to pacify the West. The Tang, however, did not have the desire or even really the ability to rule the western lands beyond the Tian Shan. 
and so the Protector General appointed puppet khans from the lesser ranks of the Ashna clan to govern the nomads beyond the mountains. These Ashna puppets were therefore largely dependent on Tang's support and under Tang's sovereignty. But their appointment was not universally accepted on the steppe, and the Basmils, the Karluks, and others proclaimed their own Khans and Yabgus. The former Western Khanate effectively dissolved. In a large measure, the destruction of the Western Khanate had been accomplished through Turkish military might. The Tang had assimilated the Turks of the East and used their military power to conquer. Even the fall of the Ashina clan in the west had come, in part, at the hands of the largely Turkish armies led by other members of the Ashina clan. More importantly, it was the Turks' own division, first between east and west, and then between the Nushibi and the Dolu factions, their own instability and division that had destroyed the Khanate. As the Orkhan inscriptions, carved during the coming second Khanate said, You, Turkish and Oku's lords and peoples, hear this. If the sky above did not collapse, and if the earth below did not give way, O Turkish people, who would be able to destroy your state and institutions? O Turkish people, regret and repent. Because of your unruliness, you yourselves betrayed your wise Khan, who had always nourished you, and you yourselves betrayed your good realm, which was free and independent, and you yourselves caused discord. From where did the armed men come and put you to flight? From where did the lancer come and drive you away? You people of the sacred Utukan Mountains, it was you who went away. Ultimately, it was the Turks themselves who destroyed their state, and delivered themselves to the Tang, and ultimately, to the coming Arab armies of Islam. But the rule of the Tang would ultimately not endure. And next time, we will discuss how, out of the ashes of defeat, the second Turkish Khanate came to be born in the East. 